0: Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever looked at a building or a monument and just been overwhelmed by the design of it? How does the design of something change the way we think about the places where we live? Well, on the show today, we're going to be hearing ideas about building smarter, better, bolder designs. It's called The Power of Design, and this episode originally aired in May of 2016. This is the TED Radio Hour. Guy Raz, uh, t- Tony, can I tell you something that totally drives me crazy? Sure. So you know when you um, you have to join a conference call from your smartphone, oh. you've got to dial the number on your phone. Welcome. And then flip back <laughs> Please enter your meeting ID or audio code to that screen to get the conference code. Invalid entry. And then you flip back, and then you lose all the codes. You have entered <laughs> invalid meeting credentials. Goodbye. It. It drives me crazy.
3: Oh, I do that every day. Yeah. And you're like, why
0: does it have to be so hard? Right? It's crazy that nobody has figured out how to, like, make that much easier. You hit on a, a really great problem. This is designer Tony Fidel. And what he's probably best known for, a somewhat revolutionary device known as the iPod. Yeah, I had a big hand in the early days of the iPod. You could say Tony is obsessed with great design. And it means that he spots bad design all around him all the time. You know, being around me is not such a great experience (laughs) because I'm like, who designed this?
3: I'm like, it drives you nuts. Like everywhere I turn, I'm driven nuts by this and this. So I'm never really satisfied by so many things in the world. And when I do, you know, I go crazy. I'm like, oh, my God, this is brilliant. So... The amount of good design in the world is very
0: rare versus all this mediocrity that we deal with. And the solution, he says, isn't to just deal with it, but to actually do something about it, to fix it. Because Tony says we all have the potential to improve the world around us through design. If done right, everything around us could be transformed to be even better than it is today, to bring a better experience. So today on the show, the power of design. From the buildings we inhabit and the objects we use, to the intricate patterns in nature, even the ways we interact with other people. Design is all around us, all the time. Each thing that we touch that isn't natural from the natural world, someone had a hand in. And for Tony Fadell, design begins by noticing those tiny little problems that most of us usually ignore like those stickers on fruit in the grocery store.
3: That sticker wasn't there when I was a kid.
0: Here's Tony Fidel on the TED stage.
3: But somewhere as the years passed, someone had the bright idea to put that sticker on the fruit. Why? So it could be easier for us to check out at the grocery counter. Well, that's great. We can get in and out of the store quickly. But now there's a new problem. When we get home and we're hungry and we see this ripe, juicy piece of fruit on the counter, we just want to pick it up and eat it except now we have to look for this little sticker and dig at it with our nails, damaging the flesh. Then rolling up that sticker, you know what I mean, and then trying to flick it off your fingers, (laughs) right? It's not fun, not at all, but something interesting happened. See, the first time you did it, you probably felt those feelings. You just want to eat the piece of fruit, but it was... you you felt upset, you just wanted to dive in. By the 10th time, you started to become less less upset, and you started to just do the peeling the label off. By the 100th time, I simply picked up the piece of fruit, dug at it with my nails, tried to flick it off, and then wonder, was there another sticker?
0: Okay, you've totally ruined fruit for me. I, I notice that sticker every time now.
3: <laughs> once you once you focus your attention on it, it, you will never go away now because it's going to be utterly
0: annoying. Like the fact that we accept it, it makes me think that we're just drones. We're just sheep. We just go through our lives and the world accepting so many of these design flaws that actually don't improve our lives. I,
3: I I fully agree with you. And that's because I think we have such a, you know, a demanding day every day with family, with work, all these things that we're just so inundated with all these different things that we just kind of go through life through the motions. And we lose control to these things that are thrust upon us as opposed to wrenching control back going, I'm not going to do that anymore. We need to get this fixed.
0: So back in 2001... Tony was part of a team at Apple working to fix just the kind of frustrations that the rest of us didn't know we had, specifically the way we used to listen to music. Great CDs are are wonderful, but they only fit so many songs.
3: There's these other things called MP3 players out there. But at the end of the day, you want to put a 1,000 songs on them, but they were too slow, the battery life was too short. How could we innovate? And so we were trying to not just make it as good as the existing technology, but make it so you could have a thousand songs in your pocket. You could put the thousand songs onto it very quickly. You could quickly go between tracks. You could find the track you wanted, right? All of these things were parameters that we were designing around to make sure it was an incredible experience. And
0: that's where we made sure that we looked at each of those details. Every single detail And of course, Steve Jobs made sure of that.
3: Steve Jobs challenged us to see our products through the eyes of the customer, the new customer, the one that has fears and possible frustrations and hopeful exhilaration that their new technology product could work straight away for them. He called it staying beginners and wanted to make sure that we focused on those tiny little details to make them faster, easier and seamless for the new customers. See, back in the 90s, being a gadget freak like I am, I would rush out to the store for the very, very latest gadget. I'd take all the time to get to the store, I'd check out, I'd come back home, I'd start to unbox it. And then there was another little sticker, the one that said, charge before use. What? I can't believe it. I just spent all this time buying this product, and now I have to wait what felt like an eternity, to use that coveted new toy, it was crazy. But you know what? Almost every product back then did that. When it had batteries in it, you had to charge it before you used it. Well, Steve noticed that, and he said, we're not going to let that happen to our product. So what did we do? Typically, when you have a product that has a hard drive in it, you run it for about 30 minutes in the factory to make sure that hard drive is going to be working years, later for the customer after they pull it out of the box. What did we do instead? We ran that product for over two hours. Why? Be easy to test and make sure it was great for the customer. But most importantly, the battery came fully charged right out of the box, ready to use, so that customer could just start using the product. It was great. And it worked. People liked it. Now today, almost every product that you get that's battery powered comes out of the box fully charged. But back then, we noticed that detail, and we fixed it. And now everyone else does that as well. No more charge before use. These are those little, little details that are so important, Yeah. and I call it emotional momentum. From the time you first learn about a product, you engage with that. And then you learn more and more about it if it's intriguing to you. And you hope that there's this positive emotional momentum that builds on itself at each step of the process. And you don't have something like a battery that causes you to hit a brick wall. And you lose all the momentum. People are like, ah, I'm frustrated. You just threw away this entire great experience you were designing for
0: people. What explains why some products really take off? Like, (laughs) you know, like the iPod, obviously hugely popular. But then... The Microsoft Zune, you know, perfectly well-designed product, and yet it, it died. So
3: this is a thing that I've been wrestling with with my, you know, 25, 30-year career. And I think I figured it out. Um, and what you always have to look at is when you design something, there are two halves to design, just like there's two halves to your brain, the emotional part and the rational part. If you want people to truly adopt your product or what have you, it has to have an emotional component, you know, something that grabs you and goes, oh, I want to learn more. It it unlocks that curiosity that says there's something cool here. It also needs to rationally work. There's got to be a good reason why I'm doing it. Is it for saving money? Is it for saving time? Is it going to be more convenient for me? And you need to separate your features into both the rational features that cause people to want to buy it and the emotional features that get people off their duff to actually buy it. So you have to blend these two halves in a very good blend to be able to get people excited and off their butt to go and buy it because they see value beyond the sexiness.
0: How can like the rest of of us do it? Like how can can we learn to have the same kind of eye that, that you do for good design?
3: Well, I think the first thing is, you know, there's truly um, incredible, innovative designers that you don't know where their inspiration comes from, but they can come up with these very interesting ideas that the world's never seen before. And then there's designers who, through a really uh, rigorous process, come up with new designs we haven't seen before either. And both work, but the latter one. Um, is actually something you can learn yourself. You can teach yourself, and it just takes practice, and it just like learning the piano. Some people have incredible talent, but you can still learn to play the piano, and I think design's the same way if if, um, if you set your mind to it. So no one should ever think that there's this, whoa, incredible design person, and that we have to go to the oracle for all design. No, you can do it yourself, and you can you can tune your eye to, to see that, and... Um, You can design even if you don't think you have the utter talent that you see others have. Picasso once said, every child is an artist. The problem is, is when he or she grows up, is how to remain an artist. We all saw the world more clearly when we saw it for the first time, before a lifetime of habits got in the way. Our challenge is to get back there, to feel that frustration, to see those little details, so we can stay beginners. It's not easy, but if we do, we can do some pretty amazing things. For me, hopefully, that's better product design. For you, that could mean something else, something powerful. Our challenge is to wake up each day and say, how can I experience the world better? And if we do, maybe, just maybe, we can get rid of these dumb little stickers.
0: Thank you very much. That's Tony Fidel. He designed the first iPod, and he's now the CEO, founder, and designer of Nest. They make smart thermostats. You can watch Tony's full talk at TED.com. More ideas about the power of design in a minute. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. everyone just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible first to wix.com a web platform for creating your own professional website with wix whether it's your first time creating a website or you're a longtime pro you can do it yourself Choose from hundreds of stunning templates or start from scratch with drag and drop technology and powerful web features. Join over 125 million people already using Wix to create their own websites. Go to WIX.com to create yours today. So what will you create? Thanks also to Simply Safe. Simply Safe home security. Simply Safe is self-installed wireless protection for your home. The company was founded by an electrical engineer whose friends were burglarized. They wanted home security, but most systems were too complicated and too expensive. So, he built Simply Safe. Now they protect over 2 million people. And with Simply Safe, there are no annual contracts. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/radio
1: hey
3: this is stretch armstrong and this is Bobito garcia the hosts of what's good we're talking with one of the coolest cats around lenny kravitz
4: i remember this kid walked up to us in the
3: hallway and he goes your dad's white," and he planted his finger like that subscribe now
0: it's the ted radio hour from npr I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, we're exploring ideas about the power of design, including perhaps the most ubiquitous kind. Architecture. This
4: is Mark Kushner. We are always in architecture, and if we're not in architecture, we're surrounded by architecture. So think about anything else that has that much presence in your life that you don't respond to emotionally, right? You you spend as much time around buildings as you do
0: around your loved ones. And while you or I may not notice those buildings, Mark Kushner does. I'm an architect. Is that like a job that you always wanted to do? Or is it like, how does that work?
4: No, like, you know, within architecture, you'll hear the story frequently
0: that, well, I used to play with Legos. So I always knew I'd be an architect. Except every kid plays with Legos. Exactly. (laughs) Mark's connection to design actually started in a more unusual way. Mark's dad is a real estate developer. And so on weekends, he would take Mark and his siblings to see every kid's favorite attraction. Suburban office buildings in Western Jersey. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know, like...
4: Beautiful. (laughs) I remember an office building, actually. And it looked like every other suburban office building, except it was this really weird baby blue. It, It just struck me that someone went out on a limb here. It made me think that um, there were possibilities that ordinarily you don't see explored.
0: And so it occurred to Mark that all buildings, whether they're suburban office buildings or the Empire State Building, they can all make us feel something, something we don't often think about. So when you see something like the Eiffel
4: Tower, you're sort of aware of, oh my God, this is a building, this is affecting me. But it doesn't have to be that bombastic. The places where you spend your day-to-day, that strip mall where you get your coffee, or that store where you really like to sit and read in, these places affect you. They make you happy or they make you feel protected.
0: That's an emotional power that architecture brings to the table. Mark's idea is that architects today have more tools and more technology than ever before to unlock those emotions. Emotions we don't always realize are there. So think back to your childhood home. You can probably remember the layout, your bedroom, the hallways. And Mark says you remember those things for a reason. Here's how Mark remembered his childhood home from the TED stage.
4: Around the corner from my bedroom was the bathroom that I used to share with my sister. And in between my bedroom and the bathroom was a balcony that overlooked the family room. And that's where everyone would hang out and watch TV. So that every time that I walked from my bedroom to the bathroom, everyone would see me. And every time that I took a shower and would come back in a towel, everyone would see me. And, and I hated it. I hated that walk. I hated that balcony. I hated that room and I hated that house. And that's architecture. <laughs> Done. <laughs> that feeling those emotions that I felt. That's the power of architecture. Because architecture is not about math and it's not about zoning. It's about those visceral, emotional connections that we feel to the places that we occupy. That means that architecture is shaping us in ways that we didn't even realize. That makes us a little bit
0: gullible and very, very predictable predictable because architects more or less know how people feel about certain designs. They use symbols as shortcuts to emotion. And it's why so many government buildings are based off Greek designs. We see those columns and pediments and we think power and authority. But Mark says it also means that architecture can fall into the same patterns. Because there's a lot at stake. It's really scary
4: to build something. It's really expensive. It takes so long. It's so complicated. And if you're going to put all this stuff on the line and you're going to risk so much money and time and energy, I think people start to think, well, I better make some safe choices. I better
0: mitigate that risk somehow. And I think one of the first things to go is design. Which is how buildings like the library in Mark's hometown in Livingston, New Jersey, Get built.
4: Livingston uh, built uh, this really, I, I guess I'd say, colonial version of what a library is white dome, and it has white columns and red brick. It's perfectly polite. I just think that they could have done better. And you can kind of you know, you guess what Livingston's trying to say with this building children, property values, and history. But it doesn't have much to do with what a library actually does today. That same year, in 2004, on the other side of the country, another library was completed. It's in Seattle. Which looks like, um, kind of like a geode. It's like this frozen crystal in the middle of downtown Seattle. And it kind of twists and torques its way up to be a very tall building, and it's completely clad in glass. And this building was a sort of first stab at, okay, what's a library now? Now that books are changing, and the way that we consume information is changing. This library is about how we consume media in a digital age. It's about a new kind of public amenity for the city, a place to gather and read and share. So how is it possible that in the same year, in the same country, two buildings, both called libraries, look so completely different? And the answer is that architecture works on the principle of a pendulum.
0: Okay, let's just pause to break this down. So think about one side of that pendulum being traditional, like that colonial-looking library. And then on the other side, there are buildings like the Seattle Library, provocative, experimental. And the story of architecture, Mark says, is a constant back and forth between those two approaches, traditional, experimental. For instance,
4: you know, in in the 70s, architects were coming out of a period of experimentation with brutalism concrete, dense buildings, small windows, really heavy, Mm. heavy, heavy heavy buildings. And then architects kind of pushed it too far. And the public lost faith in these buildings. So as we get closer to the 80s, we push the pendulum back into the other direction and re-engage those symbols that we know you love. Let's just give the people some pediments for a while. Let's just give them some columns that that they can relate to because they've seen them before. In the late 80s and early 90s, we throw out historical symbols. We rely on new computer aided design techniques, forms crashing into forms. This is academic and heady stuff. It's super unpopular. We totally alienate you. So we start experimenting again and we push the pendulum back and back and forth and back and forth we've gone for the last 300 years and certainly for the last 30 years. But then, I think that the pendulum kind of fell apart. Hmm. What happened? Hands down, the building that changed everything
0: was Frank Gehry's Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. You've probably seen photos of the Guggenheim in Bilbao. It looks kind of like a series of huge, wide ribbons of steel resting on each other. And it's incredibly innovative and experimental. But at the same time, it was inviting. You just kind of felt good looking at it. And for the first time the pendulum didn't really matter anymore. This building fundamentally changes the world's
4: relationship to architecture. Paul Goldberger said that Bilbao was one of those rare moments when critics, academics, and the general public were completely united around a building. The New York Times called this building a miracle. Tourism in Bilbao increased 2,500% after this building was completed. So all of a sudden, everybody wants one of these buildings.
0: So how's that possible that a building that was so radical became so beloved? It was as much the building and the success of that building as it was the
4: media around that building, right? So after that building opened, the internet happened. And all of a sudden, the internet increased the speed of communication And we could start telling each other that other buildings were important, that other amazing stuff was going on. Once media, once digital media started speeding up and we all started learning about things online, buildings became liberated from their sites. So a selfie in front of a building actually carries weight. Uh, It carries a different kind of weight than reading about a building in an architecture journal or seeing it in a big portfolio book. It becomes a part of my friend's history. It becomes a place I want to go visit. I want to see with my own eyes, and it becomes part of my story.
0: Mark says that kind of relationship to architecture works really well in the world of social media. And so much so that social media is now a kind of design tool for architects. It's a tool that can create a sense of community when it comes to designing new buildings. Let me show you how this plays out in a project that my firm recently completed. We
4: were hired to replace this building, which burnt down. This is the center of a town called The Pines in Fire Island in New York State. It's a vacation community. We proposed a building that was audacious, that was different than any of the forms that the community was used to. And uh, and we were scared, and our client was scared and the community was scared. So we created a series of photorealistic renderings that we put onto Facebook and we put onto Instagram. And we let people start to do what they do, share it, comment, like it, hate it. But that meant that when the renderings looked exactly like the finished product, there were no surprises. This building was already a part of this community. That means we don't need the Greeks anymore to tell us what to think about architecture. We can tell each other what we think about architecture. Because digital media hasn't just changed the relationship between all of us, it's
0: changed the relationship between us and buildings. So this new approach to design, right, by including the public, in the process through social media i mean what does that mean for the future are we like are we never going to go back to that period where where the pendulum swings you know between traditional and experimental every few years i
4: think it's different now hmm. i don't think it's going to be back and forth anymore from hmm. experimentation to the safe zone of using symbols that the public recognizes i think what social media has created is the opportunity for multiple experiments to be running simultaneously and that's because it's freed The people who make decisions about what kind of architecture they want to pay for, right, clients and governments and developers, that makes it okay for them to experiment. it, It ceases to be an experiment. The norm is experimentation now. That means that that pendulum swinging back and forth from style to style, from movement to movement is irrelevant. And it means that the buildings of tomorrow are going to look a lot different than the buildings of today. Buildings don't just reflect our society. They shape our society down to the smallest spaces, the local libraries, the homes where we raise our children, and the walk that they take from the bedroom
0: to the bathroom. Thank you. That's architect Mark Kushner. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. So when we talk about design, maybe you think of those great buildings Mark Kushner was just talking about. Or something you can hold in your hand like an iPod. Or maybe it's something you look at in an art gallery. Well, that's the kind of design Joe Gebbia wanted to do in high school. I had this dream to be a painter,
2: of all things like fine art painting? Yeah, like fine art painting. I had this dream to be a fine artist, you know, uh, creating work in, in New York City and having gallery shows, and that was, that was the life that I imagined for
0: myself. And Joe's dreams of being a fine artist took him to the Rhode Island School of Design.
2: Yeah, I was another kid doing design at RISD, kind of learning my way, you know, making a lot of mistakes, and there was a, a very important principle that I learned at RISD, which was that anytime you see duct tape in the world, that's a design opportunity. Hmm. Why? Why? Because it's an indicator that something's broken. That something didn't perform the way that it, it was designed to. And that there's an opportunity to improve it.
0: So, okay. Fast forward a couple of years. Joe's painting career hadn't exactly worked out. But he got his own duct tape opportunity. And at the time, he was living in San Francisco, going through a pretty rough time financially. Here's Joe on the TED stage. I'm unemployed. I'm almost broke.
2: My roommate moves out. And then the rent goes up. And then I learned there's a design conference coming to town, and all the hotels are sold out. So here's what I pitch my best friend and my new roommate, Brian Chesky. Brian thought of a way to make a few bucks, turning our place into designer's bed and breakfast, offering designers to come to town a place to crash, complete with wireless internet, a small desk space, sleeping mat, and breakfast each morning. Ha! (laughs) We built a basic website, and Airbed and Breakfast was born. Three lucky guests got to stay on a $20 airbed on the hardwood floor, but they loved it. And so did we. We took them on adventures around the city, and when we said goodbye to the last guest, the door latch clicked. Brian and I just stared at each other. Did we just discover it was possible to make friends while also making rent? The wheels had started to turn. My old roommate, Nate Boczarzik, joined as engineering co-founder, and we buckled down to see if we could turn this into a business. Here's what we pitched investors. We want to build a website where people publicly post pictures of their most intimate spaces, their bedrooms, the bathrooms, the kinds of rooms you usually keep closed when people come over, and then over the internet. They're going to invite complete strangers to come sleep in their homes. It's going to be huge. (laughs) We sat back and we waited for the rocket ship
0: to blast off. It did not. Okay, if it's not clear by now, Joe Gebbia is one of the co-founders of Airbnb, a company literally changing the world of travel and lodging. 750,000 people stay in an Airbnb-listed room every single night. And Joe says design is the key to their success. Design not in the sense of a piece of art where the goal is to make you feel a certain way about a painting or an object. But Joe's design is about making you feel a certain way about someone. But the idea that that was even possible was a hard sell back in 2008. And Joe and his co-founder, Brian Chesky, struggled to get investors interested in their idea. We thought it was going to be huge, but then investors didn't quite think that.
2: And we found that out the hard way. You know, we got introduced to 20 people in Silicon Valley. These are kind of the who's who. 10 returned our email, five minutes for coffee, zero invested in Airbnb.
0: So, so you're like totally deflated. You guys have this, like, great idea and nobody's interested in, in investing. Why? Why weren't they interested? Well, I think that we came smack up against
2: uh, one of the deepest biases that, that we have is that, you know, we've all been taught since we were kids that strangers equal danger. And so no one in their right minds would invest in a service that was all about letting strangers into people's homes. I mean, it kind of made sense that they didn't invest, right, based on this deeply rooted bias that, that we've been taught since we were kids. Yeah so we had a real problem on our hands we had to not only get people to adopt our service but to do so we had we had to overcome a social bias in the world and that's that's where that's where design came into the picture and i guess to me like design as a competitive advantage is the thing that can separate you because it used to be about processor speed and screen size and like all these kind of features, but you know the, the playing field for access to that kind those kinds of technologies has, has largely leveled off. So, what is the next thing that can differentiate you? And I think all things being equal, two comparable products side by side with the same technical features and components, you know, you'd be crazy to choose the one that was harder to use.
0: That's Joe Gebbia. When we come back in just a minute, Joe explains how Airbnb's design decisions not only made their service easy to use, but also how it helped millions of complete strangers trust each other. I'm Guy Raz. More ideas about design in just a minute on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but ZipRecruiter can make it simple, smart, and fast. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 job boards with one click. Then it scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash hour. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Thanks also to SmartWater. SmartWater aims to go beyond what others are doing. Taking inspiration from the clouds themselves, SmartWater one-ups them by adding electrolytes for a clean, crisp taste. SmartWater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. I'm
2: Meghna Chakrabarti, one
0: of your new hosts
2: for On Point. We take on the news with the smartest guests and live calls from every corner of the country. NPR's David Folkenflick hosts the Friday Week in the News.
5: Join David and me for On Point.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the power of design— And we were just hearing from Joe Gebbia. He's one of the founders of Airbnb. Joe was never a software designer by training. He'd actually gone to art school. He wanted to be a painter, which is why early on in the birth of Airbnb, he and his partners had an inkling that design could be their secret sauce, that millions of people would be more than happy to open their homes to complete strangers if Joe and his team could design their service to encourage trust. Here's Joe on the TED stage.
2: In art school, you learn that design is much more than the look and feel of something. It's the whole experience. We learned to do that for objects, but here, we were aiming to build Olympic trust between people who had never met. Could design make that happen? Is it possible to design for trust? I want to give you a sense of the flavor of trust that we were aiming to achieve. I need you to take out your phones. Now that you have your phone out, I'd like you to unlock your phone. Now, hand your unlocked phone to the person on your left. (laughs) That tiny sense of panic you're feeling right now (laughs) is exactly how hosts feel the first time they open their home. Because the only thing more personal than your phone is your home. People don't just see your messages, they see your bedroom, your kitchen, your toilet. Now, what if we changed one small thing about the design of that experiment? What if your neighbor had introduced themselves first with their their name, where they're from, the name of their kids or their dog? Imagine that they had 150 reviews of people saying, they're great at holding unlocked phones. (laughs) Now, how would you feel about handing your phone over? It turns out a well-designed reputation system is
0: key for building trust. So how did you do that? Like, how did you design a system that allowed people to to trust each other?
2: I guess to me, like, we wanted our service to be as welcoming as our living room was. Yeah. And our design mantra at that time was fun and friendly. So anytime we could show a face in our service, we would. Right in search results, on profiles, on the actual homepage, I think the the tone of voice that we used also engendered trust, and even some like maybe subtle things like the color palette.
0: Yeah, I mean even as far as like the box where people type in the messages, like like you, you say it's just the right size and length, and then you you want people to give just enough information, uh, like not too much information.
2: Right. So one of the important ways to build trust when two people are meeting for the first time is to encourage them to have the right amount of disclosure. And when a guest first sends a message to a host inquiring about their home, we can look at it and see what's too short and what's too long. So yeah. if somebody writes and says, hey, yo, the acceptance rate typically goes down. Right. And if they write something that's that's too long, it's like a novella, their acceptance rates also go down. right? And so there's a zone that's just right, which is the, hey, coming for vacation with my family and man, I love the artwork in your place, et cetera, et cetera. Did did you
0: guys face any competitors
2: early on? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so this, you know, there were many websites like ours that did the exact same thing. I think the question is why did ours eventually take off? Yeah. And the luck and timing aside, I think we were able to understand the components of trust and to design for that. Now, things have been going pretty well. Obviously, there are times when things don't work out. Guests have thrown unauthorized parties and trashed homes. Hosts have left guests stranded in the rain. Thankfully, out of the 123 million nights we've ever hosted, less than a fraction of a percent have been problematic. Turns out people are justified in their trust. And when trust works out right, it can be absolutely magical. We had a guest stay with a host in Uruguay, and he suffered a heart attack. The host rushed him to the hospital. They donated their own blood for his operation. Let me read you his review. Excellent house for sedentary travelers prone to myocardial infarctions. <laughs> the area is beautiful and has direct access to the best hospitals. <laughs> Javier and Alejandra instantly become guardian angels who will save your life without even knowing you. They will rush you to the hospital in their own car while you're dying and stay in the waiting room while the doctors give you a bypass. They don't want you feel lonely, They bring you books to read, and they let you stay at their house extra nights without charging you. Highly recommended. (laughs) Of course, not every stay is like that. But this connection beyond the transaction is exactly what the sharing economy is aiming for. The sharing economy is commerce with the promise of human connection. People share a part of themselves, And that changes everything. Thank you.
0: Joe Gebbia is one of the co-founders of Airbnb. Check out his entire talk at TED.com. So we've talked a lot about design, of course, but what about the designers? Design critic Alice Rosthorn says there's one thing all great designers have in common. They're rebels.
1: Really, up until the Industrial Age, that's exactly what most designers were. Um, There were exceptions. Architects, for example, or sort of polymathic um, artist figures like Leonardo da Vinci. But most designers were rebels and renegades, sort of designers only by intuition and improvisation.
0: People like...
1: 18th century pirates. Pirates. Like Edward Teach Blackbeard.
0: So why does Alice consider Blackbeard one of the most Brutal pirates in all of human history, a genius designer? She explained from the TED stage.
1: This was the golden age of piracy, where pirates like Teach were terrorizing the high seas. Colonial trade was flourishing and piracy was highly profitable, and the smarter pirates like him realized that to maximize their spoils, they needed to attack their enemies so brutally that they would surrender on sight. So in other words, they could take the ships without wasting ammunition or incurring casualties. So Edward Teach redesigned himself as Blackbeard by playing the part of a merciless brute. He wore heavy jackets and big hats to accentuate his height. He grew the bushy black beard that obscured his face. He slung braces of pistols on either shoulder. He even attached matches to the brim of his hat and set them alight so they sizzled menacingly whenever his ship was poised to attack. And like many pirates of that era, he flew a flag that bore the macabre symbols of a human skull and a pair of crossed bones. Because those motifs had signified death in so many cultures for centuries that their meaning was instantly recognizable, even in the lawless, illiterate world of the high seas. Surrender or you'll suffer. So, of course, all his sensible victims surrendered on sight. Put like that, it's easy to see why Edward Teach and his fellow pirates could be seen as pioneers of modern communications design, and why their deadly symbol, uh, there's more, why their deadly symbol of the skull and crossbones was a precursor of today's logos, but of course with a different message. Nobody would have congratulated Blackbeard or any other pirate on being a designer at the time, <laughs> nor would they have labeled themselves as such. But if you analyze the skull and crossbones and Blackbeard's other design strategies like that, it's clear he was a very, very smart designer indeed. I mean, it makes you realize that that image, a self-image,
0: is a design concept. I mean, you can apply that to Madonna or to Absolutely. Kim Kardashian. I mean who you are and how you project yourself is
1: designed. Oh, absolutely. And so there are so many ways in which we can signal our own perceptions of our personal identity and also our political ideals and the kind of communities that we wish to align ourselves with or whether we wish to be screamingly eccentric and gloriously idiosyncratic. And of course, we design ourselves to do so. If, say, you have an important job interview and you dress up that little bit more smartly, you're designing yourself for that interview. You're using design strategically, whether you realize it or not. Yeah. I mean,
0: it's interesting because basically what you're saying is that we are all designers. We're all designing who we are every single day.
1: Absolutely. But I would find it very difficult to believe that anybody could design anything of any worth unless they had a dream, unless they had a vision. And so I do believe that the greatest designers tend to be the biggest dreamers and also truly great designers tend to be very engaged with what people want and need. I think it was Henry Ford who said had he asked um, people about their transportation needs when he was developing the Model T Ford, they would have undoubtedly asked for faster horses because if you ask us, the public, we tend to think of improved versions of the things we've already got. Whereas the great lateral leaps in design come from designers imagining things that completely astonish and surprise us and yet they're useful to us and they can execute and and deliver. design was also used to nobler ends by an equally brilliant and equally improbable designer, the 19th century British nurse Florence Nightingale. Her mission was to provide decent health care for everyone. Now, Nightingale was born into a rather grand, very wealthy British family who were horrified when she volunteered to work in military hospitals during the Crimean War. Once there, she swiftly realized that more patients were dying of infections that they caught there in the filthy, fetid wards than they were of battle wounds. So she campaigned for cleaner, lighter area clinics to be designed and built. Back in Britain, she mounted another campaign, this time for civilian hospitals, and insisted that the same design principles were applied to them. The Nightingale Ward, as it is called dominated hospital design for decades to come, and elements of it are still used today. Greatly as I admire the achievements of professional designers, which have been extraordinary and immense, I also believe that design benefits hugely from the originality, the lateral thinking, and the resourcefulness of its rebels and renegades. And we're living at a remarkable moment in design because this is a time when the two camps are coming closer together and we all stand to benefit. Thank you.
0: That's design critic Alice Rosthorn. Her book is called
1: Hello World,
0: Where Life Meets Design. You can watch her full talk at ted.npr.org. Today on the show the power of design. And so far we've been talking about things designed by us, by humans. But that is only one part of the story. When did you start to sort of look around at all the things in nature, like a tree or a flower or a beehive, and think, oh my god, this is, this is design?
5: You know, I can't think of a time when I wasn't sitting in the grass watching ants go by. I mean, I was always that kind of a kid.
0: This is Janine Benyus.
5: So I thought of the natural world as, you know, a community because I knew all the birds and the butterflies and where they were nesting. I thought of them as a natural city, in a sense, and that all the inhabitants were really good at what they do. Hmm. Um, People think about the struggle of nature. It didn't seem like a struggle to me. Yeah. It seemed like they had it worked out.
0: And so if you were to describe in just one sentence what it is you do, what what do you do?
5: Well, we help innovators solve problems by asking the question, um, how would nature
0: solve this? Has nature already solved this? Janine works with designers who want to find a better way to do things like lay floor tiles at an airport or insulate buildings. And she does this by looking at the natural world for design inspiration. It's an approach called biomimicry.
5: It's literally a bridge between
0: biology and design. It's innovation inspired by nature. Which makes total sense, right? Innovation inspired by nature. But on the TED stage, Janine says, in our day-to-day lives, we don't always see that connection.
5: I have this neighbor. And one time he came up to me, he was about seven or eight years old. He came up to me and there was a wasp's nest that I had let grow in my yard. And he asked me how I had made the house for those wasps, because he had never seen one this big. And I told him, you know, Cody, the wasps actually made that. And we looked at it together. And I could see why he thought, you know, it was so beautifully done, it was so architectural, it was so precise. But it occurred to me how, in his small life, had he already believed the myth that if something was that well done, that we must have done it? How did he not know, it's what we've all forgotten, that we're not the first ones to build, you know, we're not the first ones to process cellulose, we're not the first ones to make paper, we're not the first ones to try to optimize packing space, or to waterproof, or to try to heat and cool a structure, We're not the first ones to build houses for our young. What's happening now in this field called biomimicry is that people are beginning to remember that organisms, other organisms, the rest of the natural world, are doing things very similar to what we need to do. But in fact, they're doing them in a way that have allowed them to live gracefully on this planet for billions of years.
0: I wonder, I mean, it seems like designers and inventors kind of always looked to nature for inspiration. Like you think of da Vinci or, you know, the Wright brothers. Like they were looking at the natural world around them and they were building things that mimic them.
5: You know, you just mentioned two of the biomimics and there were not that many of them, to tell Hmm. you the truth. Now, I think when you go way back... We practice biomimicry. You know, we looked at the webs of spiders and said, you know, let's make fishing nets like this, right? We looked at the snowshoe hare, the foot of a snowshoe hare and said, you know, let's make snowshoes like this. I mean, I think because our
0: survival depended on noticing what works. But as you said in, in your talk, it seems like we're going through a shift now, right? Like that more designers are paying much, much more attention to the natural world. They are, And what's
5: interesting now is that the questions that designers are are being asked to fulfill are very similar to what organisms in the natural world have had to do all along. You know, they've they've had to use local raw materials, and we want to use local raw materials. You know, they've had to make things that are easily upcycled back to their environment. We want to do that too. So suddenly the playbook, nature's playbook, is like finding this amazing catalog of answers to the questions we're now asking.
0: I mean, so, so what are some examples? Like, what are some of the things that we're using right now that, that were inspired by things in nature?
5: Well, for instance, every day people are walking through the airplane security things, that, that thing where you put your hands up over your head. And that is an acoustic camera that's based on the learnings from the a Brazilian
0: free-tailed bat. Huh and how it echolocates. And there are tons and tons of examples like this, including a little beetle from southern Africa.
5: This is a little critter that's in the Namibian desert, has no fresh water that it's able to drink, but it drinks water out of fog. It's got bumps on the back of its wing covers, and those bumps act like a magnet for water. They have water-loving tips and waxy sides. Um, And now Kinetic and architectural firms are starting to look at this as a way of coating buildings so that they gather water from fog. Ten times better than our fog-catching nets. How does nature repel bacteria? We're not the first ones to have to protect ourselves. This is a Galapagos shark. It has no bacteria on its surface, no barnacles. So how does it keep its body free of bacteria buildup? It doesn't do it with a chemical. It does, it turns out, with the same denticels that you had, you know, in, in, on speedo bathing suits that broke all those records in the Olympics. But it's a particular kind of pattern, and the architecture of that pattern keeps bacteria from being able to land and adhere. There's a company called Sharklet Technologies that's thinking about putting this on the surfaces in hospitals to keep bacteria from landing, which is better than dousing it with Antibacterials or harsh cleansers that many, many organisms are now becoming drug resistant. There's scientists in Cornell that are making what they call a synthetic tree because they're saying, you know, there's no pump at the bottom of a tree. It's capillary action and transpiration pulls water up a drop at a time. And they're creating you can think of it as a kind of wallpaper. They're thinking about putting it on the insides of buildings to move water up without pumps.
0: These are absolutely incredible examples. Like, you don't... I mean, I guess, you know, when, when you describe it, it makes perfect sense. But it also makes you wonder, like, why, why isn't this happening more? It's a really good question, and I... In part,
5: it's simply because, you know, the people who make our world uh, rarely take biology classes. Imagine if a mechanical engineer, the first class they took was, how does nature pump? Yeah, you know, and they learned about whale hearts, or mm-hmm. how does nature distribute fluids? And they learned about the Murray's law and the perfect branching system, and the perfectly efficient way to move fluids through uh, tree branches and roots. That was their first class. But we teach people in great detail how humans have solved problems mm. in the past, and we very much elevate. Those people we admire; those people, but when we look to the natural world, we don't have that same level of respect yet.
0: Yeah, when something is designed, right? Like you can imagine that there's there like focus groups and blueprints and tests and and surveys done. But the cool thing about nature is it's it, it's totally unselfconscious, right? It just does mm. what it does. And it, I wonder if there's something for humans to learn from that. You know that that risk taking.
5: Well, you know, it's exceedingly cautious during its lifetime. Organisms are exceedingly cautious. They really are paying attention to their surroundings on like a second-by-second basis. You know, how are the conditions now? How are the conditions now? And they're adapting themselves to those changing conditions all the time. We could learn a lot from that. But then, the way life innovates over generations is the reshuffling of information from two beings. Like, Sex. Yeah. And the selection of which of those great ideas are going to get to go into the next generation is all about, does it create conditions conducive to life? Yeah, Is it conducive to life continuing? And that selection criteria is another thing that I don't think we quite have that yet. We need to start asking questions like, will this product, will this process or service or whatever it is we're inventing, will it allow life to continue the question is biomimicry is an incredibly powerful way to innovate life over 3.8 billion years has made a lush livable place for us how can we do what life has learned to do which is to create conditions conducive to life now In order to do this, the design challenge of our century, I think, um, we need a way to remind ourselves of those geniuses and to somehow be in touch with these incredible models, these elders that have been here far, far longer than we have. And hopefully, with their help, we'll learn how to live on this earth and on this home that is ours but not ours alone. Thank you very much.
0: Janine Benyus is the co-founder of the company Biomimicry 3.8. You can see both of her TED Talks at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on the power of design this week. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkinpour, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at TEDRadioHour at NPR.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter. It's at TEDRadioHour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.